light of infinite. Last week, we discussed the notion that exile is a state of disconnect, and redemption is the rectification of that state. In the Kutei Sichot, it's written that the true meaning of redemption is the attainment of a state of transcendence above the boundaries and limitations of the material world. However, it's essential to realize that the intent of this statement is not that the transcendent state should nullify the world and its limitations, but rather that there should be a fusion of the infinite and the finite, and that godliness is meant to be revealed in our physical world in a Mishkan, a dwelling for Hashem, for God, established in the lower realms. And as we read the end of the Torah portion, Parashat Pekudeh, which is also the end of Exodus, we read about the mikvah and its purifying, status-altering power. Bring Aharon and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting, and immerse them in a mikvah. Clothe Aaron with the sacred garments. Anoint him and sanctify him, so that he may serve as a Kohen, a priest to me. Many are familiar with the mikvah, knowing of the customs of the married woman's immersion as a part of the laws of family purity, and of course, as part of the process of those who convert to Judaism. In the instance of Aaron and his sons, the immersion was more of a change of status than a purification, an elevation from one state to another. We see in the case of conversion to Judaism, it's not a matter of uncleanliness or purification, but rather a change in status. As it's written, as soon as the convert immerses and emerges, he is like a born Jew in every way. The mikvah process, in this sense, is like a rebirth. As it's written in regards to the convert's status change and renewal, the mikvah is like re-entering the womb. As it's written, a convert who embraces Judaism is like a newborn child. Outside of the status change, the mikvah process is used to restore a person to a state of ritual purity. As it's written, you shall not make your souls unclean. It's important to note that on a physical level, too, the person is required to be hygienically clean prior to entering the mikvah. The process to this day for women around Nida, a married woman's menstrual cycle, is fairly detailed and is meant to be a spiritually healing process. Just as the womb is a space devoid of tumah, of uncleanliness or impurity, in which the baby cannot become impure in any way, the mikvah for men and women can also be looked as a status change from tumah, unclean or impure, to tahor, to clean or pure. The Talmud teaches that all the waters that flow through the world ultimately have their root in the river that flowed in the Garden of Eden. So our immersion in the flowing waters of the mikvah is a re-establishment of our connection with the Edenic state. Ezra the scribe at the beginning of the second Beit HaMikdash, the Holy Temple period, decreed that every male that becomes impure due to a seminal omission should not learn Torah. Others added that they shouldn't even pray prior to immersing. The decree was never fully accepted, but many do have the custom to this day. The Rambam teaches that the custom in North Africa and Spain that the Jews would not pray if they had a seminal omission until immersing in a mikvah which Rambam based on the verse, prepare to meet your God, Israel. The practice comes from the understanding that when we wake up ready to serve Hashem, we are compared to a Kohen, to a priest, preparing to serve in the Beit HaMikdash, in the Holy Temple. And just as a Kohen would immerse before serving in the Beit HaMikdash, even if he was already pure, then we too should immerse before prayer. One of the most beautiful places in Israel is Masada. 1800 plus years have passed since ancient Israel fought the Roman Empire. The excavations and discoveries on top of Masada have been fascinating. One in particular was finding two mikvahs. One likely was used for men and the other for women. The laws surrounding the building of the mikvah are very detailed, and so two experts on the construction of mikvahs, Rabbi David Munzberg and Rabbi Eliezer Alter, were brought in only to find that in over 1800 years, the construction and the importance of the mikvahs for Jews around the world has not changed. The ritual of purity through immersion in flowing water and the construction of a mikvah in each community is one of more importance than even the construction of a synagogue, since prayer can be done in a number of different locations. 
It said that those that are close to Hashem, that they are like a tree planted by the water and will be rewarded with fresh leaves and Mayim Chaim, living waters or forever flowing water. Living waters represents energy and health and chiyut, life, for the soul. Water represents truth in Torah as we say, Ein Mayim Ela Torah, which means the only water is that of the Torah. We read about the Israelites that they traveled three days in the wilderness and found no water. And as Isaiah writes, Oh, all who thirst come for water. We learn from this that water is Torah. And because of this, the Talmud relates that the prophets instituted that the Torah should be read on the second and fifth days of the week, as well as on Shabbat, so that there should not be three days that pass without Torah. I love how Rabbi Arya Kaplan teaches about the water's power to nullify the ego. We can see this from the etymology of the word ma'im, which is Hebrew for water. According to a number of authorities, it shares the same root as the word ma, meaning what. When a person immerses in water, they nullify their ego and asking, what am I? Ego is the essence of permanence, while water is the essence of impermanence. When a person is ready to replace their ego with a question, then they are ready to be reborn with its answer. Thus, when Moshe and Aaron declared, we are what? Our sages comment that this was the greatest possible expression of self-nullification and subjugation to God. When a person enters the mikvah, they subjugate their ego in a similar manner. We can also see this in a more prosaic manner. When a person immerses themselves in water, they place themselves in an environment where they cannot live. Were they to remain submerged for more than a few minutes, they would die from lack of air, literally placing themselves in a state of non-existence and non-life. Breath is the very essence of life, and according to the Torah, a person who stops breathing is no longer considered among the living. Thus, when a person submerges themselves in a mikvah, they momentarily enter the realm of non-living. So when they emerge, they are like a person reborn. To some degree, this explains why a mikvah cannot be made into a vessel or a tub, but must be built directly in the ground. For in a sense, the mikvah also represents the grave. When a person immerses, they are temporarily in a state of non-living, and when they emerge, they are resurrected with a new status. The representation of mikvah as both a womb and a grave is not a contradiction. Both are places of non-breathing and are endpoints of the cycle of life. What we have to realize is that beyond being infused with a godly soul, a spark of divine within us, what connects us all is water. Our bodies are mostly made of water. The brain and heart in particular are composed of 73% water. We tend to mirror each other's inner belief systems, and so if we aren't watering ourselves and those around us in connectedness and positivity, then individually and collectively we can't grow. Continually giving yourself and others life force and learning to quell our ego is essential to being in a blissful and connected state. The opening scene of Eternal Sunshine for the Spotless Mind comes to mind when Jim Carrey is in a funk, plays hooky from work, and has a sudden urge to go to the water in Montauk in February when it's freezing. He's pulled there despite the weather for its grounding elements. He starts to journal and then gets up talking to himself, and just then, in the corner of his eye, he sees a woman walking, and we hear him thinking out loud, if only I could meet someone new. I guess my chances of that happening are somewhat diminished, seeing that I'm incapable of making eye contact with a woman, I don't know. We are seeing this deep craving for connection, but even more fundamental than that, connection is alignment with our own self-contained and content being. As we know, but often don't take enough advantage of, nature tends to ground us, and being away from nature, back in hustle mode, tends to take us away from connecting to our inner self, and instead has us focused outward, towards goals beyond ourselves constant distractions from going inward and connecting to Hashem. A mix of so many things that we feel are important in society and in what we think we need to accomplish in life to reach a certain status. The hardest but certainly the most fulfilling accomplishment 
is reaching oneness, contentment, the feeling of being in love with self and the feeling of being one with the space of being in our own skin in the predicaments we are in, what they call having it all together. Rabbi Shlomo Karlbach asks, how do you know if you mamash very much have it together? And he answers, very simple. If you don't have it together, you give up when things fall apart, which also happens to be the title of a novel which inspired my favorite hip hop album by The Roots. If you really have it together inside, there's no such thing as giving up. Kalbach goes on to teach that Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses, brought down the man, the mana, giving us the Torah and really teaching us at the end of the Book of Redemption that if we don't have it all together, we are in exile. We are still slaves. In the same parasha, in the same Torah portion, we are taught that by making a dwelling, a sanctuary for Hashem in this world, the glory of the Lord fills the sanctuary. As we read, the clouds of Hashem were over the Mishkan, the tabernacle, during the day, and fire was within it at night for all the families of Israel to see during their travels. We see the power of the four elements, water, fire, earth, and air, and how grounding they are to each of us. Being surrounded by water and waves washing over us reminds us not only of the beginning, being in the womb and sustained by it all, but being surrounded by the life-giving force that connects us all. It reminds us that we need to let go of all the things we've created and strip ourselves down of the foundational elements of ourselves and not all the traumas and experiences that create layers of shells around our true selves. It's the same with planting our feet into the countless specks of sand, or being surrounded by an expanse of desert or mountains, reminiscent of Masada, things that humble us, bringing healthy perspective back into our being. I was in Miami and it seemed that every house that I went to had a pool, or then further in the backyard, there would be water separating that house from the next house, or neighborhood in the distance. I sat next to the water and read the pasuk, the verse about the mikvah, and I decided to open my Likute Maran to see what I would find about water. And I landed on a lesson about a super esoteric passage in the Talmud, which is also discussed in the Zohar. The story is of four sages, Ben Azai, Ben Zoma, Elisha Ben Avaya, known as Acher, and Rabbi Akiva that entered into the Pardes, the orchard. Rashi explains that we are to understand that they ascended to heaven through intense meditation on the divine name so that they could come to a greater perception of God. Prior to their ascension, Rabbi Akiva said to them, When you come to a place of pure marble stone, do not say water, water, for it is said, He who speaks untruth shall not stand before my eyes. Ben Azai gazed at the divine presence and died. Regarding him, the verse states, Precious in the eyes of God is the death of his pious ones. Ben Zoma gazed and was harmed, which Rashi explains means he lost his sanity. Regarding him, the verse states, Did you find honey? Eat only as much as you need, lest you be overfilled and vomited up. Acher cut down the plantings, which is meant to be understood as having become a heretic. Rabbi Akiva entered in peace and left in peace. The Tikkunei Zohar adds some details that weren't mentioned in the Talmud. A Saba, an old man, stood up and said to Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, Rabbi, Rabbi, what is the meaning of what Rabbi Akiva said to his students? When you come to this place of pure marble stone, do not say water, water, lest you place yourselves in danger. For it said, He who speaks untruths shall not stand before my eyes. But it's written, and it shall separate between water above the firmament and water below the firmament. Since the Torah describes the division of the waters into upper and lower, why should it be problematic to mention this division? Furthermore, since there are in fact upper and lower waters, why did Rabbi Akiva warn them, do not say water, water? Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai replied, Saba, it's proper that you reveal the secret that the Chavraya, Rabbi Shimon's circle of disciples, have not grasped clearly. Saba answered, Rabbi, Rabbi, holy lamp, Surely, the pure marble stones are the letter Yud, one the upper Yud of the letter Aleph, and one the lower Yud of the letter Aleph. 
Here there is no spiritual impurity, only pure marble stones, and so there is no separation between one water and the other. They form a single unity from the aspects of the tree of life, which is the vav in the midst of the letter aleph. In this regard it states, lest he put forth his hand, and if he take of the tree of life, and eat, and live forever. The letter aleph is formed of yud on the top, an upside down yud on the bottom, and a vav diagonally between them. The gematria numerical of yud is 10, and vav is 6, and as many of us know, 26 is the numerical of Hashem's four-letter name, the Tetragrammaton, the ultimate divine infinite light. This is certainly a very far-out mystical teaching, and the Ramak delves into the passages to bring light to the meaning behind its esoteric style. The Ramak explains that Rabbi Akiva is coming to explain that, that the sages should not declare a separation between water. Do not say water, water, because there are in fact not two types of water, so they would endanger themselves in the sin of separation. The Saba speaks from a place of outside of the Pardes, because in our physical reality, in exile, there is separation. He asks, why is it problematic? As it's written, there shall be a firmament between the water and it shall separate. The two types being the water of the firmament and the water below the firmament, in rivers, lakes, and seas. Rabbi Shimon wanted his disciples to hear from Saba the true meaning of what they had encountered. Saba explained that each of the marble stones represented the letter Yud. There is a mystical explanation in the verse, I am first and I am last, which is seen in the Aleph and the Yud at the beginning and the Yud at the end. The upper Yud is the Yud of the Tetragrammaton, Yud Ke Vavke, while the lower Yud is the Yud of the name, Aleph Dalad Nun Yud. The Yuds can also be seen as female waters, Mayim Nukvin, and male waters, Mayim Dukhvin. The upper are called female waters because they receive from below, from the performance of the mitzvot, the commandments, which is the way in which we can affect the higher world so that the light will shine forth and become clothed in them. The top and bottom yuds of the aleph are visual representations of or yashar, of the light from above to below, and or chazer, the light from below to above. When the Talmud writes pure marble stones, it's referring to the two yuds, each stone being a yud. It's taught that it's called marble because pure marble signifies the radiance of God's awesome light, which in this physical world resembles the glistening of water. The two yuds are referred to as marble and become one. We see this by way of tziruf, the tradition of letter combinations and permutations. The first sphere of chokhmah, wisdom, is called yesh, being, spelled yud shin in Hebrew. The lower chokhmah, meaning malchut, is called shai, shin yud, which is the identical letters but in reverse order. When both words are combined, they form the word shayish, which means marble. The yud is chokhmah, the source, and the shin is seen as branching out into the spherot, according to the mystical understandings of Oryashar, the light from above to below, and malchut is called shai, as in the light that reverses, or chazer. When these two words, which represent the Oryashar and or chazer, are combined, they form the word shayish, with the two yuds combined into one. Coming back to the letter aleph, the diagonal vav that is between the upper and lower yuds that join them. The design of vav looks like a hook, and in Hebrew the word vav actually means hook, or connection. A hook is something that holds two things together. Rabbi Akiva warned his disciples that when they behold the light's radiance, they shouldn't mistake it for an impassable barrier to perceive godliness. However, he also warned them not to reach past the perceptions that were beyond their abilities to comprehend and grasp. Ben Azai and Ben Zoma gazed beyond their capabilities. Ben Azai died, while Ben Zomo was stricken and some say died shortly after, while Acher, a great scholar, misinterpreted the vision of God and his ministering angels and lost faith, becoming a heretic. The phrase in the Talmud, cutting the plantings, describes Acher's cutting down the trees in the orchard. 
Only Rabbi Akiva was able to enter and exit in peace. That's why in the Pardes, the orchard, Rabbi Akiva warned them not to say that two marble stones were separated from one another, since in the Pardes, that's not true. It's quite the opposite. It's the firmament between them that actually unites them, and only through it they are joined together, since the water of the marble stones are completely pure. And as we learn, there's no separation other than in a place of spiritual impurity, as it's written to separate between the impure and the pure. So for this reason, Rabbi Akiva stresses that in a place of purity, do not say water, water. This too is what Saba was explaining. Here there is no spiritual impurity. There are from the aspects of the tree of life. These waters are in Atsilut, literally the world of emanation, which Kabbalistically is also the highest of the four worlds, which exists the Kabbalistic tree of life. And therefore, there is no separation between them. On the contrary, the firmament unites them. Just like with the letter Aleph, the Vav unites the upper and the lower Yud. Rabbi Nachman of Breslov learns from this tale that a person who attaches himself to God creates a dwelling in this world so that their thoughts roam freely from one chamber to the next. As they reach the higher chambers of divine wisdom with the mind's eye, they need to avoid speaking falsely, even by mistake. Last week we covered that to merit the revelation, each person must first awaken our love and fear that is the arousal from below. It's our spiritual task manifested through our offerings and meticulous way in which we build the Mishkan and our inner temples. The idea also plays out in Prati, God's direct personal supervision. That's when one sees Hashem's ongoing active participation in one's life, arousal from above. This is when a person sees, as Ramam explains, Hashem choosing to reveal himself to man. What each person does with that is up to them. But when a person chooses to receive that revelation and offers it back up in generosity, then we fully understand what we spoke about last week, what the Rambam and Rebbe explain. In relation to a dwelling for God, man serves Hashem and creates a dwelling for his revelation within himself. And this concept of an arousal from above and arousal from below mirrors the Or Yashar, the light from above to below, and the Or Chazer, the light from below to above. It's this mastering of our relationship to the source of all, Hashem, that we need to continually perfect, reaching higher states of unification. We have to try to see the truth and the good in all things and to judge favorably as much as we can. To do this, we have to be grounded and content and work on nullifying our ego in order to find our inner peace so that we can see that mirrored in others. Perfecting our relationship we have with ourselves and our Creator will spill into positive relationships with Hashem's creations. This unification and connectedness is practiced in so many ways through mitzvot, commandments, and brachot, blessings. Both clothing and food were affected by the sin in the Garden of Eden. Our having to toil for our bread and our awareness of our nakedness and the clothing we wear to hide it, our post-Edenic state puts physicality and the need to work for our food as one of our difficulties. But we must know that we are meant to spiritualize the material. This in and of itself is a form of teshuvah, coming from the word return. It's not just we who return to Hashem, but through our acts we have the ability to return all that Hashem has given us in this world back to a higher place, back to its source. I'm remembering a pasuk, a verse in Parashat Ekev, in which Hashem says, Take care lest you forget Hashem by not observing the mitzvot, the commandments, and wards against being lost in the accumulation of possessions, to the point that your heart turns haughty and you forget Hashem, who took each of us out of Egypt from the house of slaves, thinking in your heart, my strength and the might of my hand made this wealth. That is the battle in the physical world, between a state of exile and a state of redemption, between connectedness and a feeling of disconnect. It's the battle to get to a state of not seeing or speaking falsity. The Yalkut Yosef, quoting Orot HaMitzvah, explains the purpose of the brachot, particularly Birkat Amazon, the blessing after meal, 
to keep us mindful of Hashem's ever-present hashkacha. The next verse says, Lest you eat and be full, and your heart will be haughty, and you will forget Hashem your God. It's in man's nature, once full, to forget who the provider of all is. But we can't ever forget who is the provider of all providers, from whom everything emanates and is created. We read here that we need to remove the thought that it all comes from our own effort, because that's when ego manifests and holiness grows more distant. In order to ensure this not to be the case, we are commanded to bless Hashem and proclaim our love of Hashem. As it's written, For all is from you, and what we have given you came from your hand. The space that we crave in the verse that comes to mind is from Malachi, which is, Return to me and I will return to you. Dive in deeper at lightofinfinite.com.